The reader is me, reading from uh, John 13, verse 31 to 35. I'm reading from the message. I'm sorry, but I like it. <laughs> um, so starting verse 31. When he, that is Judas, when Judas had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is seen for who he is, and God seen for who he is in him. The moment God is seen in him, God's glory will be on display. In glorifying him, he, made him, he himself is glorified. Glory all around. Children, I am with you for only a short time longer. You are going to look high and low for me. But just as I told the Jews, I'm telling you, where I go, you are not able to come. Let me give you a new command. Love one another in the same way that I loved you. You love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples. When they see the love you have for one another. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's my privilege to pray for my friend Ken. Our Father, thank you that we are once again together. We pray your blessing on Ken as he's prepared a message for us. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be touching us and we'd be attentive to your leading and direction in our life. We pray that you would anoint this man with your presence, that uh, he would be reliant on you for all things. And thank you that we are once again together in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. Well, it's, uh, it's, hang on. <coughs> That's better. Uh, it's good to be here uh, this week. Uh, for, uh, I don't. Most of you probably aren't aware, though some of you are. We've been, our family's been away on vacation for the last couple of weeks. It's our first time we've managed to get away in the last almost four years, and so it was good to get away as a family. And as much as I love going away, I, I love coming home. I, I, I love, at about day 10, I was, I'm ready to go back. I'm ready to go back to work. I'm ready to be back. At church, I'm ready to to be part of community again. Um, a week ago, we were in a small Episcopal church in Lahaina. Uh, there was no walls. The trade winds were blowing through. Lizards and birds were walking around in the in the sanctuary. This is a little different than that. Uh, but it's wonderful to be back. It's wonderful to be here with you. And I was privileged when the elders asked if I would. Uh, help do some of the some of the well at first they said Todd's going away on sabbatical we'd like you to do some of the preaching and I said sure that's no problem and then they said we're giving you one week out of the four months that he's gone <clears throat> I do get two now yes yes I got, I got bumped up to two so I don't know what that says uh, exactly but here I am we are four weeks past Easter We're more than halfway to Pentecost. We ought to be looking forward, moving towards the ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit upon all those who believe. But before we can step forward into that new reality and step fully into the resurrection, perhaps we ought to look back at a moment and look again at one of the final teachings that Jesus gave while he was here on earth with us during Holy Week. 
but this time see it again from this side, our side of the resurrection. John chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, Jesus calls it a new commandment. But it kind of sounds a lot like an old commandment, doesn't it? Don't his words sound a lot more like the ancient second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now I know for some of us this sounds like an overdone and overemphasized topic. Really, the love of God? Can't we move past that? Isn't, haven't we heard that enough? God loves us. God so loved the world. God is love. We've heard this message from the time we were little children, right? What was one of the very first songs we ever learned in, in, in Sunday school? What was it? Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. We, 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 we get it. So can we move on to more interesting, more challenging, more complex theological topics than God loves me and the love of God? We could. Except this commandment is one of the last things Jesus says to his disciples. And last words ought to be taken seriously. In fact, in John's gospel, after issuing this new commandment, John then writes down Jesus' longest uninterrupted speech in the whole of the gospel narratives. Chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. Which when taken as a whole and read as a whole are really an exposition on this one verse. God's love for us, the love we ought to have for God, and the love we ought to have for one another. In these five chapters, Jesus uses the word love 25 times. Now from that, we, either ha- we have to learn one of two things. Either Jesus thinks that the love of God and our love for one another is really important, or that we're just really stupid and don't get it, and so he has to repeat himself. It's probably a bit of both. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, says Jesus, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and manifest myself to him. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. These things I command you so that you will love one another. That repeated refrain of, you shall love one another, you shall love one another, you shall love one another, repeated three times, probably because Jesus thinks it's important. And then at the end of the Gospels, after the resurrection, what's the focus of Jesus' conversation with Peter? What does he say to Peter? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon. Of John, do you love me? He repeats it three times. Oh, and if, and if that's not enough reason for us to regularly focus on the topic of love as Christians, there's also the whole cross thing. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. John, in one of his shorter letters, one of his epistles, wrote this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So, based on the last words of Christ, the cross, and the fact that every single New Testament writer puts an emphasis, a repeated emphasis, on God's love for us, our love for God, and that we ought to love, have a love for one another, it seems to me reasonable that even at the risk of repeating ourselves, we ought to spend perhaps a disproportionate amount of time on this topic. I also think that it is a more complex topic to understand than we may consider it to be at first glance. And certainly, it is more challenging reality to live into than most of us would perhaps like to admit. So back to the passage at hand. Jesus, having just washed his disciples' feet and pronounced that one of his own is about to betray him and that he is going to the cross and he's going to die, says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now I see three problems or pitfalls with this simple message. The first is this, we regularly water down the word, the concept love, don't we? I mean, it's an expansive word, it's one we use all the time to describe our reactions both to the marvelous and to the frivolous. What are some of the things that we say we love? Come on, you know what they are. What are some of the things you say you love? Mm-hmm. Ice cream. What else? Barry? <laughs> Barry Manilow, really? Ron mentioned him available for counseling, right? During the five sabbatical. Okay, we say we love Barry Manilow. We're not judging. I was a little bit. What else do we love? Sports. Family. You love the flowers and the trees and the way that nature reveals the nature of God, right? We love chocolate, wine, cars, pets, people, songs, the people who sing them. We love God. It's a very broad range. But does it all mean the same thing? When we say we love a particular food, or we love a restaurant, do we really mean the same thing as when we say we love our spouse or we love our children? Is there a difference between those two expressions? To make love so broad can water down the impact of the word and it can, it can flatten out our true understanding. Even to keep love of person rather than love of objects in the realm, we can still make light of it. We, we equate romance with love. That fluttering in our heart, we say, is love. And then when that fluttering is gone, our conclusion is that, well, love must be gone. Or that true love can be expressed by some cheesy poem in a Hallmark card. Most of us have used I love in trivial ways. 
but we also have used it in deep and intimate ways. Like the first time you tell your would-be spouse, I love you. Or when we say to a loved one who is dying, whom we know we will not see again until Christ's return, I love you. But what does it mean when we say that God loves us? That Jesus loves you? Is it more than sentimental romanticism? Is it more than a love for hot chocolate? What does it mean that God so loved the world? So there is an act of loving, me loving someone, you loving someone. And that is, if we're honest, something not all of us are great at expressing or showing. We've messed up love and confused it with lust and passion and romance and warm fuzzies and sense of satisfaction or pleasing taste. The example of God in Christ gives us of love is that the act of loving includes laying down your life. Giving up all that you are and all that you have for the sake of others. That's love. Jesus' love is relentless and it's ruthless. Jesus' love is relentless grace and ruthless forgiveness. No matter what we do, his love always arcs towards forgiveness and mercy. Does yours? I know mine doesn't. I know often that when I say, I forgive you, there's a part of my heart and my mind which adds a little phrase afterwards. Something along the lines of, for now, but I reserve the right to bring this hurt or sin up again at a later point in time. That's not what God means when he says he loves us and forgives us. When he says, I forgive you, it's done, it's gone. That's his love. And so we water it down, we diminish it, we put caveats on love out of our own selfishness, our own sinfulness. And this is the first difficulty I see in this passage. The second difficulty I find in this passage comes from the part where Jesus says, as I have loved you. We often struggle to believe or to accept that Jesus actually does love us that we are even worthy of his love. Jesus says, love as I have loved you. Brendan Manning is one of my favorite authors. I think he's a great writer, a great sinner, and a great saint. We were actually this close to naming our son Ethan Brennan because I, I like Brendan Manning so much, and then I found out that Brennan is Gaelic for teardrop. I don't know if you've met Ethan, Ethan means strong, firm, and I'm pretty sure stubborn. <coughs> Teardrop wouldn't have worked. But Brennan Manning says that on the day of judgment, on the day that we stand before the throne of God, on the day that Christ stands before us in all his radiant glory, he will have only one question for us. Do you believe that I love you? Did you believe that I loved you? Do you really believe that God loves you? 
Not you as a part of a greater whole. God so loves the world, I'm part of the world, therefore God loves me. God loves all that he has made, and because he made me, he therefore must love me. Or it's by his nature, he must love. I remember once, I won't say to whom I said this, because it was someone in your congregation, but I first met this individual when they were about 14 years old. We'd known each other for about three minutes. We were standing in a lunch line at Anvil, waiting for our first meal. And I said to this individual, you know, Susie, God loves you. She turned and looked at me and smiled, and I said, but only because he has to. (laughs) We became friends after that. Do you really believe that God loves you not out of because you're part of a greater whole, not because he loves all that he has made, not by his nature he is love and therefore he has to love, all which is true and wondrous, but he loves you individually and personally. This idea must be taken in and thought about and mulled over and contemplated and accepted before we can really understand what Jesus is saying here. If you do not believe that Jesus loves you, then his statement, love one another as I have loved you, is not possible and it makes no sense. In truth, many of us in different ways and to differing degrees think ourselves not worthy of love, be it God's love or the love of others or even our own love. Because of who we see ourselves to be, sinners, weak, scarred, imperfect losers. We convince ourselves that our false self is who we really are, and so we do not deserve to be loved. But that's sort of the point of it, isn't it? Isn't that the wonder and awe of the cross? That we are loved despite the reality that we may not be worthy of it? Gills Fraser, in his recent article in The Guardian, the newspaper of London, wrote an article entitled Christianity, when properly understood, is a religion of losers. He wrote this. The Christian story, like the best of terrifying psychoanalysis, strips you down to nothing in order you to face your new self, yourself anew. For it turns out that losers are not despised or rejected, not ultimately, In fact, losers can discover something about themselves that winners can never appreciate. That they are loved and wanted simply because of who they are and not because of what they achieve. That despite it all, raw humanity is glorious and wonderful, entirely worthy of love. This is revealed precisely at the greatest point of dejection. The resurrection is not a conjuring trick with bones. It is a revelation that love is stronger than death, that human worth is not indexed to worldly success. It's too bad how the horrible secular media doesn't allow Christian thought, isn't it? So yes, at one level it's true that you, I, none of us are worthy or deserving of God's love, or for that matter, the love of others. That's the wonder of the cross. 
But on another level, because of who we are, made in the image of God, made alive again in Jesus, we do become worthy, not because of who we are, but because of who he is in us. You are loved. By his blood, you are made worthy of his love. The father loves his children simply because they are his. So we water down love. We don't accept that we are loved or could be loved. The third problematic piece of this passage is that we fail to comprehend the last part of the command. That is, we fail to understand exactly how it is that Jesus did and does love the world and love us. How was it exactly that he did show his love and demonstrate his love? And therefore, how are we to demonstrate that love to the world and to others? I do know what it looks like not to love others. I'm pretty good at that. Whenever I see injustice and don't speak up, I'm not loving others as God has loved me. When I make decisions based on what's best for me rather than what, it may, than what may bless my brothers or sisters, I'm not loving as Jesus loved me. When I say I'm too busy to help someone in need, when my pride gets in the way of me saying I'm sorry, when my anger wounds ones that I love, I'm not loving others as he loved me. When I fail to offer comfort, when I am negligent in prayer and worship, when I form false judgments about others, so justifying their suffering by saying things like, I think they deserve it, or they made their own bed, so let them lie in it, I'm not loving as Jesus loved me. When I am not a caretaker of creation, when I waste and I overconsume, when I do what is easy rather than what is right, I am not loving others as Jesus loved me. There are so many ways I know of how not to love others as Christ loved me. And I'm sure most of you could add your own ways to the list. But the question is, is how do we love as he loved? Any ideas? How do we love as Christ loved? He says we're to love as he loved us. So how do we do that? How did Christ love? important question folks unconditionally Unconditionally. how else do we demonstrate the love of Christ sacrificially how else pardon ourselves yeah without judgment through the use of forgiveness Grace, reminding ourselves that every single person we meet, be they the person irritating us in traffic or the person serving us at the Department of Motor Vehicles or anyone else in our family or whoever it is, they themselves are in the midst of a great struggle of which we are largely and mostly completely unaware. I think, too, it is about learning to discern God's voice discerning his voice and his leading in our soul and learning to quiet the other voices in our minds and in our hearts, including at times our own voice, which often cries out in pain and with self-protection. It's not easy and it's never perfected. It takes time and intentionality 
to listen and to discern, to wait patiently at the beginning of each and every day and at the end of each and every day, to want to hear His still small voice throughout the day, His Spirit guiding us in wisdom and faith, in love, joy, and peace. But we have to learn to listen to it. So this simple passage may not be as simple as it first appears, and certainly not simple to live out as Jesus would have us live it out. So if it's so difficult, I would even suggest impossible to live it out all the time and in all circumstances, why would Jesus give us this command? Why would he set us up for failure? How is this new commandment any different from the enslaving nature of the old law if we know that we cannot live it out? In other words, why bother with it? What's the point? Because it's not about us individually succeeding or failing. Our keeping the law does not impact our salvation or the amount that God loves us. That was taken care of by the cross. We are to love others as Christ loved us for the sake of others. As an example of God's love for the world, we are his continuing presence, his continuing grace in the world to show others that we are his, we are part of his kingdom, we are his disciples. The last line Jesus gives is this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Notice Jesus does not say, people will know you are my disciples because you go to church on Sundays or because you say you're a Christian. He doesn't say, all the people will know that you're my disciples because you can quote reams of scripture, chapter and verse, or because you can recite a liturgy by heart. He does not say, people will know you're my disciples because you shared with them the four spiritual laws, or tried to convince them that they're sinners in need of a savior, or because you can brilliantly articulate an apology for the faith. He does not say people will know you're my disciples because you are a holy person or a good and righteous person or someone with a great moral compass who keeps all the laws. No, what he says is people will know you are my disciple if you keep this one command. Love one another as I have loved you. If you forgive one another, if you turn the other cheek, if you go out of your way to help someone when they ask for help, if you consider others more worthy than yourself, if your presence brings joy and hope, if you seek peace in all circumstances, if you outdo one another in showing honor, if you contribute to the needs of others and seek to show hospitality, if you bless those who persecute you, if you rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, if you repay no one evil for evil, if you are patient and kind, if you do not envy or boast, if you are not arrogant or rude, if you do not insist on having things your way, you are not irritable or disagreeable or resentful, if you bear with others in their weakness and their sinfulness and are even willing to bear their guilt at cost to yourself, then you will love as he has loved you. And by that love, all others in the world will know that you are his disciple, his beloved child. A new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Lord Jesus, help us to understand this simple verse. We confess to you that we have indeed watered down what it means to love. That we don't fully understand what it means. We confess to you that that we don't always understand or believe that you actually love us. To actually love me, that you love Ross, Ron, Catherine, Kim, Richard, to actually love us. And we confess that we do not always know or understand or live out loving others as you have loved us. We ask your forgiveness. Mostly, Lord, we ask you to help us understand that you do love us. That we are loved not because of anything we do. We are loved in spite of our scars and our wickedness and our sinfulness, and our frailties, and even in spite of our successes and achievements. We are loved because of the cross. We're loved because the Father loves his children, and we are made children of the Father by adoption and grace. Jesus loves me, this I know.